I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey guys, you ever wonder what Phil and I wear while we podcast? You can find out if you join our Patreon. We'll also be talking about the films of 1989, but that's definitely less important than seeing our Zoom backgrounds, our headphone choices, and our sweatshirts. It's true. It's true. You'll get to see all the various pieces of artwork that I have framed on my office wall, and you can see Kenny's garden, sort of. So that's something. That's exciting. It's a hanging garden. It's a hanging garden. Uh, But perhaps more important than anything, uh, we are doing this Patreon to cover the best films of 1989. Uh, Batman, When Harry Met Sally, Indiana Jones, The Last Crusade, Ghostbusters 2, with amazing guests like Tom Meissen, Liz Hanna, Joanna Robinson, Brian Cogman, Chuck Hayward. You can sign up at patreon.com backslash podcast like it's 1989. And for $5, you'll get access to all the audio of these fantastic episodes. For a few bucks more, you'll get video as well of our 99 and 89 episodes. And perhaps, most importantly, you'll be supporting us uh, so we can just keep making podcast content for you guys. Welcome to Podcast Like It's 1999. I'm your host, Phil Iscove, and with me today uh, is Sarah Watson, a writer, producer on Parenthood About a Boy, creator of The Bold Type, uh, and the film reenactment show about Goonies, something to that effect. Mm-hmm. Uh, Making the Goonies, yeah. There you go, there you go. Uh, and Adam Karp, writer, producer, uh, and past guest from The Minus Man, everyone's favorite episode, I'm sure. Uh, and uh, Once Upon a Time, Teen Wolf, thank you both for being here to talk about the West Wing with me. Thank you for having us. 
Yeah. We're, I'm one week apart, the minus man and this. Yeah, this is a yeah. month of Adam Carp on right. a podcast like it's a lot. It is. We're going to talk about episode 109, the short list. But before we do that, I want to rewind a little bit and ask you guys about sort of your history with West Wing. Did you watch it in 99? Uh, was it like a show you watched live? And does it hold up for you? How do you look at it now through the lens of a post Trump? America. Mm. Carp, you go first because you're such a yeah. Man. I mean, <laughs> um, and Sarah and I, by the way, have known each other a very, very long time, and we were neighbors, weirdly, and that's how we met, actually. Um, that's funny. But uh, but uh, yeah, I I did not watch the show in '99. I didn't start picking up the show until probably. Wait, were you born yet? <laughs> yes, I was born already. Thank you. God damn it! Um, not that young, sir. <laughs> But yes, it was, I, I watched it, I didn't pick up the show live until its final season, actually, but the year before that, I watched everything. But the funny thing was, in 99, my cousin had been a, was like kind of a sort of consultant on the on the show, um, or like, you know, just a re- like a person they used for research. And so one day, I got a phone call on my birthday from Martin Sheen, just like wishing me happy birthday That's in 1999. Cool. Yeah. Which is, and I, I didn't even watch the show at the time. So it was like, I was like, all of a sudden I'm talking to Martin Sheen, who was, I think, on a boat in the Chesapeake with my cousin, um, which was weird. But it was, uh, that was my like first, like, oh, there's a West Wing show. Cool. All right. And then I didn't really pick up watching the show for a long time. But once I did, I watched everything. And I'll say that now, uh, I go to sleep every night watching the West Wing, just about. I put, I, I mean, I have seen every episode of this show so many times because I just will put it on at night. And there's something about it that's like, even in the, you know, post-Trump era, maybe more so, it feels good to engage with government in a positive way. And despite like the problems within the show in certain places, like it still feels good to engage with government in a positive way. Um, no, I, I agree with that 100%. I, you know, I, I, we, I had Alan Sappenwall and Emily Vanderwerf on for the, for the pilot. And, and, we, and, and Emily has thoughts about how this show positively or negatively affected the perception of government in this country, the perception of um, uh, what it means to work in the White House, all that kind of stuff. Um, I am on this, I'm in the same camp with you, Adam, in the sense, and I'm, I, I don't know Sarah, but we'll obviously, my, my feelings are that the show, uh, as naive as it might be, as sort of, you know, sentimental and, and, and saccharine as it might be at times, um, it just makes you feel good about the possibilities of this country. Um, so if nothing else, I think that that's a positive. But Sarah, what about you? What are your thoughts? Yeah, so I did watch it in 1999 because okay. I'm significantly older than Carp. <laughs> and as <laughs> I'm... <laughs> We're like five years <laughs> apart. We're not that far <laughs> apart. He's a millennial. I'm Gen X. It's a whole thing. Maybe uh, it felt like more when I was 20 and I met you. <laughs> but, like, but like we're five years apart, maybe? I don't know. Anyway, anyway. whatever. Anyway, so I mentioned this on the Felicity podcast, yes. but I was, I graduated from college in 1998. So I was working my first TV job in 1999. So TV, and that was when TV was starting to just explode and these one-hour dramas, we were coming out of this era of sitcoms and into one-hour dramas in this really significant way. And I was working as an assistant 
And I missed the pilot of West Wing because that was like pre-DVR, if you can believe it. Correct. And I had a writing class that night. And the next day when I went into work, everybody was talking about the West Wing. Oh, my God, the West Wing. So then because we all had connections to the agencies, I remember like calling up an agent's assistant being like, can I get a VHS of the West Wing pilot? (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. Yeah. So then my roommates and I all watched the West Wing. It was one of like our can't miss shows. Um, I started writing a spec, a West Wing spec, and then I just realized it was way out of my ability. But I was proud. I did have like a funny runner in it where Donna adopted this cat that she found behind a dumpster that had like one eye and she brought it into the White House and then it ate CJ's goldfish. (laughs) Well, you probably had a good... That we see for the first time in this episode. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you probably had a good rhythm for the voices, I meant, right? Was your, am I making this up? Your your sample for a long time was a Gilmore Girls. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I like the banter. And this was the first show that I was like, oh, yes. Right. But I did at age 22, I did not have it yet. Yeah. <laughs> but, I, but I liked trying. And I will say I definitely did a rewatch. I did a rewatch shortly after Trump was elected just because I needed to feel hope and optimism. Like, Yes, it can be saccharine and sweet, overly sentimental at some times, but like, I feel like we need that. And that's what entertainment is. This is not a documentary. This is entertainment. And I turn to it for the comfort. So I did a a rewatch right after Trump was elected. And then I did another rewatch when the pandemic started. I did Friday Night Lights and I did West Wing because those shows make me feel good. Yeah, I did a West Wing rewatch um, from season three onward because I knew that I was going to be doing this eventually. So I didn't want to kind of do them too quickly right back to back. Um, And I actually watched seasons five and six for the first time in a very long time, which held up a lot better than I expected them to. I think we just because they're not the Sorkin seasons and all that. But but, uh, just to rewind quickly to, to, to the Gilmore Girls thing, I imagine also writing a spec of this show would require a significant amount of research yeah. too, right? Like, you know what I mean? The, so to to, ha- to make sure that these characters, which is such a Sorkin staple, that these characters sound incredibly smart, that they know every angle, that they know all the details. I imagine that that's why he sort of, I mean, runs his rooms the way he runs his rooms, which seems to be more of a uh, think tank, if you will. Uh, and then he kind of goes off with all the various things that people give him and he makes everybody sound super smart. Um, did So you watched it live. I watched it live from season three onwards. I think the first two seasons were box set shows for me, which was sort of the, I guess, OG uh, streaming way of catching up on a show. Um Adam, you watched all the box sets, I'm assuming, or did I you? Watched, I did, and I would say I'm, I've been in a perpetual rewatch since then. So, <laughs> sure, um, sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's. I did not watch it live, but yeah, from basically 2007 now, so we'll call that 14 years. Uh, <laughs> I watched The West Wing almost every night to my partner Caitlin's uh, uh, dismay, and it was, <laughs> it, it was interesting. Was she did not, unlike maybe us, she could not really engage with it during the during those mm. uh, during those Voldemort years of government. Um, she really like just kind of engaging in any way was too traumatizing. <laughs> um, I mean, I will say that re- watching this episode, this episode 
in its own way in particular, and we'll get into yeah. Supreme Court stuff, um, but it, this felt quaint. You know, these right. scandals feel so quaint in comparison to what we've lived through over the last four years or so. Um, so I, I certainly think that that's worth unpacking as well. Like, I think that that comes back sort of a little bit to what Emily was saying about that the, that there is this idealized version of government um, that that we're just we're past now. As much as we would like to think that that a Biden administration can course correct us back to something closer to this. I mean, he is Catholic, but I just think that, you know, it, it, it is interesting to sort of look at it through that lens. It doesn't make it any less of a show. I love it to death, but, you know. But yeah, it's funny I that also, Biden thing. Oh, sorry. Go on, sir. Well, I, what I was going to say is in, in 1999, I was also, that's when I started to get heavily involved into local politics in Los Angeles. And so I was volunteering on a lot of campaigns and it felt like a really optimistic, hopeful time. Right. And I remember going to an event and Tom Hayden was there and getting to meet him and like, just like completely fangirling about a politician. (laughs) So I feel like the West Wing sort of happened to coincide with like my own political awakening, but it was before we all felt so beaten down and demoralized. Like it really did. It seemed real at the time. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's, that's sort of the Obama thing too. I think that, right. Like that was, that was a politician that people were excited about. That was a, you know, an administration in terms of all the people that were like, it was, it just, it was filled with so much excitement. Um, it's and, and I think that's part. I mean, there's this is also a Sorkin thing too about like him putting um, these people on pedestals a little bit. It's like the idea that like Josh has fangirls, which I'm assuming is sort of like the the Stephanopoulos effect to some degree or another. Which you know he was uh, obviously worked in the Clinton administration. I, I think that there's this idea that like, and it's even in like the Studio 60 pilot when like Bradley Whitford and Matthew Perry are like swarmed by people looking for autographs. <laughs> I don't think that's a thing, yeah. but you, you sort of know what I'm saying. Yeah. Adam, were you going to say something? No, it, it's funny when you mentioned Biden because, uh, you know, I, there, there's so much in common, I think, between Biden and, and, and Bartlett more so than even Obama and Bartlett was. And I mean, like the I even think that line that sort of opens up this episode in the beginning about like, I wanted a Democrat and instead I got you. Yeah. Right. <laughs> that line from the from the retiring yeah. Supreme Court justice yeah. to 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 Bartlett. Bartlett, yeah. I think there's a lot of people out there that are feeling some thoughts like that about Biden that are like, you know, I voted for a Democrat and I got a centrist. Yep. Um, yep. you know, which is which is interesting, right? And like they t- they talk about here in this episode how like you run, you know he ran very liberal and then went to the middle. I feel like generally elections are not quite that way, right? Like everybody kind of goes towards the middle at the election. uh, And then you hope to find the real person kind of later. Um, Yeah, for sure. It's, it's interesting too. So I'm going to read a synopsis of this episode. I give a little bit of context before we get into it. But uh, when a Supreme Court justice retires, President Bartlett has a golden opportunity to impact the court's composition by nominating a favorite judge. But when further study reveals the candidate's conflicting ideology, the president might change his mind and offer another judge. In addition, a headline-seeking congressman on the White House, sorry, on the House Government Oversight Committee accuses the White House staff of substance abuse, a dicey issue for one important member. The shortlist aired on November 24th, 1999. It was written by, story by Aaron Sorkin and D.D. Myers, uh, a 
a uh, press secretary for the Clinton administration. Uh, and teleplay by Aaron Sorkin and Patrick Cadell. It was directed by Bill D'Elia. 12.37 million viewers turned into this, tuned into this episode, <laughs> which is crazy. Um, I, I, so to, to dive sort of headfirst into this uh, Supreme Court part of this episode, um, you know, Adam, you bring up this very crotchety uh, <laughs> leaving justice who really kind of gives Bartlett the gears. Um, I couldn't help but think about a story that was circulating, I think, last week about how Breyer, I believe, the current Supreme Court justice who is in his 80s uh, and is obviously a, a you know Democrat, uh, refuses to retire, despite <laughs> the fact that it seems like everyone's just sort of like, can you please leave so we can put a 16-year-old on the Supreme Court that'll be there for a while? Um, and, and it's just interesting to think about, I mean, the importance that this court has in this country, which is, I, I might argue, too important. Right. Um, you know, lifetime appointments, various things, the, the the number, the composition of the court, the various things that seem sort of etched in stone that shouldn't in its own way. And and I guess my question to you guys is, you know, do you think that – do you think this show does justice, no pun intended, to uh, the importance of this court and how this – it just feels as though it's become so crazy over the last – two administrations and i'm not sure that i felt its weight as much in this episode sarah i don't you know if you feel, or i don't know sorry. if you feel it in this episode per se but what i would say is that they i think it's a three or four episode runner mendoza, before, yes. before mendoza's like on the court it is like three or four episodes i think mm-hmm. so yep. i think that while you may not feel fully the weight probably because the way they sort of try to introduce that weight is almost a, in, through a comical type right. means yeah. Um, that, you know, you do, I think, over the course of the season, feel a little bit more of the weight that this is a continuing problem for multiple episodes. And and I think that gives it some gravitas and weight and whatnot. And just honestly, also like the casting that they have here of Everett almost for for Mendoza just brings weight to these people. And even the guy they got as Harrison, I think really is a really good actor. I mean, and, and he carries himself in the way that this role sort of demanded. Um, but what, yeah. I, what I did think was weird, though, is that I we've been sort of conditioned to believe that justices are not supposed to be political. And I feel like they've gone out of their way so many times to not be political, even though they're clearly very political, especially now. And so for the outgoing justice to be so influential and so overt with the president in his office about who he wanted on the bench. I was like, like, you can't can't do that. That's some Kavanaugh shit right there. It really, really is. I mean, I couldn't, I mean, that's, I, I, of, of the, I mean, Jesus, of the three people that, that, that Trump got to put on the, on the Supreme court, I would, I, I do think that Kavanaugh's, the worst of the bunch in terms of the way that that whole thing transpired. The idea that Kennedy apparently said he would retire only if it was Kavanaugh. I mean, what? who knows how much legitimacy there is to these things. But, but in watching this specific scene with this justice saying to Bartlett, you know, uh, essentially grow a pair um, <laughs> and, 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 and stop, you know, stop doing what you think we want you to do and do what you believe in um, is interesting. I would 
garner or imagine that that hasn't happened before. I don't imagine that these justices have these conversations with presidents in this way. But I mean, this was just a, a really, I mean, Mendoza gets more meat in Celestial Navigation, which is coming down uh, in a few episodes, um, where we really get to sort of get a sense of what this man is all about. He's sort of, I mean, it's interesting to read. I was, I found, I did some research and there was uh, this interesting piece here where apparently James uh, almost heard that they were going to have the White House name a Hispanic to the Supreme Court and begged to let him play the part. At that point, the character was only to appear in one episode. Uh, We never said uh, there's more for you down the road. Uh, There was literally four lines uh, one of which was "Thank you, Mr. President," um, and then they wrote "Celestial Navigation." So it, it is interesting to think about how important this was to a prominent, mm. uh, you know, Hispanic actor. Um, he, he got into a whole thing about his uh, his salary, which I think is amazing. Which you talk to the press about, which I think is insane. Uh, where they tried to like pay him scale, and he anyway, does, it, that doesn't matter. Um, but but this is all just to say that. Um, this was a statement within yeah. this show to say we want the Supreme Court justice to be, um, you know, of color and 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 to have a you know to to change the literal and figurative, you know, complexion of this court. And there, uh, that scene, Sarah, that you're talking about, that was like taken aback by the I wanted a Democrat and instead I got you. That scene, like, there's something really amazing about it. Also, where like it. This episode, which in some sense is like kind of a a transitionary episode for the show, that scene does set the stakes for seasons to come. That because you only really can have like a Supreme Court nominee say to the president, right? You're gonna lose in three years. So you could some needs to be somebody high up there for it to have weight to say like Republicans have guts and Americans like guts, and you you don't got it. And he really is setting the stakes for the entire next three season seasons. and a half to three seasons, right? Like of base and the, the sort of internal turmoil that constantly go through of like, are we doing the hard thing or are we just kind of coasting? Is like kind of the the dramatic conflict of the entire series. Sure, and it's, it's kind yeah. of like staked right there with that Supreme Court nominee just putting it in words. It's, it's also very much at the heart of the Toby Bartlett relationship, right? The, the the two Bartlets, the things that wrestle inside this man, um, the 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 almost sort of a therapist relationship that they therapist and patient relationship that they have. Um, it's 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 interesting. I I so. <laughs> You guys were obviously instrumental in me getting Masterclass, which I did get the other day. Uh, and I was... Uh, so I was... Did you see the Sorkin one yet? I, I was literally... I was watching that yeah. yesterday in yeah. preparation for this. And and it's it's great. And everybody should certainly watch it if they if they like Aaron Sorkin or if they want to be a writer. I think it's a important thing to watch. But within that, uh, within his Masterclass, he talks about the the Rob Ritchie scene with Bartlett at the end of season three, where the uh, oh boy crime I don't know line, where he's just like that's when I decided to kick your ass. But but that really crystallizes to your point, Adam. What's said by this justice right. two three seasons earlier, right? Which is this idea of um, you know grow a spine. And right. and and be and and you can be smart. Be the smartest guy in the room. That is, you know, showing guts. Um, I think that that is. If there's a theme of, quite frankly, Aaron Sorkin's entire oeuvre, it's that right. Like being smart is courageous. 
Um, do you, do you feel like that speaks to this episode? Do you feel like that that's an accurate assessment of him, Sarah? I definitely do. I I mean, like you said, it's like his whole shtick and it's, <laughs> it's, but it's not even be the smartest person in the room. It's like do the right thing. And I think that goes back to kind of the wish fulfillment of this. And like what we want in politics is politicians who are doing the right thing. And really to have those conversations about race and the necessity to put judges of color on the Supreme court, to have that conversation over 20 years ago, it's, it's, it was kind of weird to watch this episode. I rewatched it last night again, because so many things are in the zeitgeist now. And it's like, how did he know? Like, you know, getting into the whole thing of like privacy and internet and like the internet was like barely a thing. I had had my email address for like two years (laughs) at that point. So it, it really was, he he just had this like finger on the pulse of like everything that was going on in this kind of creepy way. But then at the same time, other things felt totally dated, like them all sexually harassing each other in the yes. Oval Office. Oh my God. I mean, yes. we got it. Yeah. Well, I want to talk about the Danny thing in a second too with you, Sarah, because I'm very curious about your thoughts on the, the, the CJ Danny relationship. But, but to the privacy thing was really like the way Sam says, literally says like the decades. next two decades are going to be about privacy. <laughs> uh, and, and, and we're, we're literally, I mean, we are very much living in that. I mean, cell phones, which is, I mean, social media, which is obviously very much about privacy, looking at obviously what's going on with Facebook and any number of other things, but it's just, it's so interesting that that's the thing, that that's sort of the third rail that they choose to be the thing that boots this other nominee in Harrison. Um, I want to read a, a, just a very quick thing that Aaron Sorkin said. He had an interview. He said, I knew that I wanted the story to start with. Fantastic. Everything's great. We've got the person. Uh, and to the end with, it's a whole different guy. In other words, Sorkin continues, uh, we're going to have to discover a problem within our home run candidate. I didn't want it to be scandalous at all. I didn't want it to be a nanny. I didn't want it to be sex like Clarence Thomas. I didn't want this guy to have done something, anything wrong that I was intrigued by, say, Bork and those who agree with Bork and the Constitution does not provide for a right of privacy, and the right simply does doesn't exist. Not so much of Bork's contention with Roe v. Wade was based on the faulty legal thinking, but more, I think privacy is huge. Sorkin also knew that he wanted the action to take place over a couple of days. The more you compress time, the more heat goes up. I was taught that you want to start your stories as close to the end as possible. I'll sit with Pat, Dee Dee, and Lawrence, and I'll say, write me something about this. Write me something about how that would work. O'Donnell supplied the resume of the perfect candidate. Cadell researched the privacy arguments. Sorkin asked Myers for the ideas of what might undo who seemed like the perfect candidate. She came back with the notion of an unsigned note, a long scholarly article the candidate wrote as a young man on the Harvard Law Review, the cat's doubt cast out on his commitment to privacy rights. I think it's really interesting too. Um, obviously, both of you guys uh, have worked on many television shows. And the idea of four people working on an episode is kind of crazy um, and, and is emblematic of the way Sorkin runs a show, which is relatively anomaly. It doesn't really feel like a lot of people run shows like this. Um, But it worked (laughs) for a while. Uh, (laughs) And and, I mean, I guess the question is, 
I guess my question is sort of, how do you guys feel about group writing? How do you feel about the idea of of that versus <laughs> Sarah's face was amazing. But I, but I, I just, I think that there's there's a whole bunch of ways to skin a cat, obviously, right? There's no right or wrong way to run a show, as many people have proven. And I guess I'm sort of curious as to what your thoughts are, Sarah. You've obviously run shows, you know, uh, in terms of how this show was run. Well, this show was, like you said, it's no other show is run this right. way to, to right. my knowledge. Um, and, and also I think Sorkin was sort of like the precursor to the auteur shows, mm-hmm. but he was doing it on a show that had 22, if not 24 episodes a season. <laughs> so that's just not sustainable. Now in these short orders, you can have the auteur thing. Um, it, so I feel like he was doing the auteur thing, but then hiring people to support him and do the legwork. I, I guess it's sort of how you define group work because I am a super collaborative TV showrunner. Like I like the room. Like I'm not like a lot of procedurals will be like, everybody go break your individual episodes. Yeah. What's the point in having a giant staff if you're not going to like, yeah bring everything to every episode and make every episode as good as possible. And I also think that that model kind of breeds competition, which doesn't make for great TV either. I like, like I, what I took from Jason Kadem, I mean, I took a million things from Kadem's, but one of the things I took that I found jarring at first was that he doesn't assign episodes um, mm-hmm. as we're breaking them. And at first I was like, oh, that's weird. How do you know, like, if if, if that's going to be your episode and, like, what level of commitment? And then I realized, right. oh, you give 100% to every episode. And then he waits to sort of see once the episode is broken whose voice is going to be the best one to write that. It's really interesting. It, and it was great because nobody felt like, oh, this is my episode, so I'm going to hold back on my good pitches and my good material. Or this is my episode, so I'm going to give all the good stuff. So. It, it like that kind of collaboration and and group writing. I I really like. What I don't like is the group writing when you're two days away from shooting an episode and you each have to take a scene. And I just think you can't. I'm well acquainted with that phenomenon. Yeah. Oh, you just nobody does their best work, and also. Yeah. It's not as cohesive because like what I, I what I love more than anything is like you set up something, some tiny character moment in act one that you pay off in act whatever, how many ever acts, four or five, six, <laughs> who knows on, or there are no acts because it's a streamer, but it's hard to do that if you're group writing. And we used to call it something a lot more, a uh, lot less PC. Than yes, less, less yeah. PC back in the day. I mean, I'll, I'll say that, first of all, I agree with everything you're saying. And I, I didn't know that about uh, Jason Cadence, which is fascinating. And I think that it does create a, a, a democracy or sort of yeah. like, it really kind of flattens out the field and makes sure that everybody's giving the same amount of effort on every episode, which I think is fascinating. Um, I, I know that uh, that that Sorkin obviously. Uh, I mean, he'd be he'd be handing them scenes like moments before shooting stuff. Like it was it was a a, a crazy, and he had uh, let's call it extracurricular activities in order to make sure that he was able to find the energy to do what he needed to do. Um, so there's that too. But I, I do think that it's a miracle that we got four seasons of this show, um, that there are only three episodes that he doesn't have a writing credit on. And that's not me saying that he forced his writing credit. My assumption is that he had something to do with every episode that his name was on. Um, And if he didn't, then his name wasn't on that episode, which is to say that there are only three out of the hundred or so that he did that he wasn't involved in, in some way or another. Um, I, I, I think it's a, it's, it's, 
I can't imagine it. I don't know how it was done. Um, but to read that paragraph and to see how he sort of allocated certain things of, of the episode to certain people kind of gives me a little bit of a purview into sort of how he kind of plugged and played people into, into specific episodes. But I think there are... It is a it's a miracle that we have this right like it's a miracle that this exists in any way that this kind of one person's voice um, managed to write through 22 episodes a year or close to it, um, even with the, you know, the sort of research support he had. But I 100 I, percent I agree with you, Sarah, but like about the not wanting to get in that situation where your group writing things to a day before you're shooting or the day of shooting. But it's interesting that the, his method almost sets himself up to end up in that situation over and over and over again, where he's delivering the pages. And because he won't, you know, stand, uh, you know, allow the staff to support him and really in a, in a pounding the keys kind of way, he's having to basically get those pages out like at the last second every day. It's interesting that his, his whole system sort of points him toward that moment where we all try to avoid being at. And yet in somehow the result, that pressure cooker for him yeah. results in something amazing, at least on the page. We all know what the results are in his, you know, to his personal life um, at, at, of trying to, of trying to, to live in that space. But, but it's interesting. The, I, you know, I have to assume it's that pressure cooker that gets him to that, yeah. that place. Um, sure. No, I have, I, I think you're absolutely right. I think he's just somebody who needs the pressure and needs the chaos. Right. I do not. <laughs> and I, don't, I don't do well with the pressure and the chaos. Like those nights when like you're up all night, group writing a script it's just like this is crap but i have to keep pounding the keys whereas i think he because of that manic energy it's like that's where his rhythm comes from and oh it's also i'm 100 percent with with you sarah and let me just say i was on a particular show and i won't say what it is where you know i was sent off the script and was just (laughs) writing you know like up to that deadline with so much pressure that literally it sounds crazy. That event gave me diabetes. Like, I mean, it sounds crazy. And we're going to, we could talk about privacy slash medical, but like you can look at my like blood sugar charts and pinpoint it to the month of that event of like when my body tipped over into like having diabetes was the stress of that, like of having to deliver that script and having to rewrite over and over and over and over again, right up until the second of production with like no backup. I had this one moment in time that like will haunt me for the rest of my life. And Sorkin chose to like live in that moment for it's, four years. <laughs> it's, what's interesting is, first of all, it should be said that uh, season one of the West Wing is being done concurrently with Sports Night yes. season two, right? So like he's actually doing two television shows at the same time. Um, there's that. There's also the fact that when he does write in a vacuum, like he did for Newsroom, we saw how that played out, which is, and I don't hate Newsroom, but I, I do understand that it doesn't have the same crackle, right? Like it, it, it feels as though there's no uh, feet to the fire, right? Like he doesn't feel the walls closing in, so he doesn't, it just doesn't yeah. have the same thing. Um, it, it's, it is, I will also say too, rewatching this, I did find myself seeing the formula 
right? Like there is a formula to the West Wing and it is procedural in its own way. Like it's not overtly procedural, but there are bearing walls of structure to it that you can certainly see that he's, that once he finds those, those rails, which takes probably about half of this season to find it, it does feel like a little bit of, okay, so that's what this is. That's what, like, it, it feels a little bit, I imagine, quote unquote, easier to do once you have that formula. And this um, episode in particular really reveals it, I think, because uh, this actually, I think this episode has less storylines than some of the other episodes. Right. It really kind of has two. Two, yeah. yeah. It really just has, they really dig in on the Supreme Court storyline. And then you have the Lillian Fields press conference uh, right. around right. White House staffers using drugs, right? Yeah. But it's 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 interesting that one of the things I think is particularly interesting um, in this episode is is that like that storyline, that speech you you mentioned from Sam about what the next two decades, right? Of of uh, of privacy. The one thing he mentions that's interesting that is a conversation I don't think we've had publicly, um, certainly not in a big way, is the yeah. medical privacy. Um, we haven't had that conversation publicly in a big way, but it's interesting that he mentions that here and that's the one he chooses to have within the yep. show. Yep. Right. Like within the show over the next three, four years, Bartlett's MS yeah. is the, and the, you know, he held that back. Mm-hmm. That's also here, right? Like that yep. also started right here with the privacy yep. conversation. And I don't think the show ever decided to rhyme back or sing back to it overtly yep. that they talked about it like right here. Um, but it's, it's interesting that, about that. That's super interesting. You know, but that's the their their big thing is putting somebody on the Supreme Court who's for privacy that believes in a right to privacy, and then that becomes the big central issue of the whole show. Well, I think you're you're speaking to something that perhaps is Sorkin's greatest gift, which is uh, planning nothing but making everything look like it was planned, right? <laughs> like. There's he doesn't know what's coming, you know, tomorrow in, in any of these episodes. And yet this is a perfect example of like him. And I don't know if it's him. I don't know if it's staff. Who knows? Right. But if someone pointed to something, it's I mean, the the infamous thing about the MS is that he literally just wanted a disease that he could give Bartlett so that he was stuck at home one day and had to like watch soap operas or something. Like literally it was not even, it was the plan was not to give him some big medical thing that he withheld. Um, it just worked out that way. <laughs> like that to me is, I can't imagine it. That sounds insane. But in terms of planning, I also want to say that this episode comes off of the only episode in the first in the basically the run of this show, because the only other two episodes that Sorkin doesn't have writing credit on are in season four when he's slowly kind of leaving the show. The previous episode is Enemies. It had no less than five writers, okay? It was, it sounds just based on some of the reading and research on that previous episode was a nightmare. Um, And it seemed like, he ran out of bandwidth and had to give an episode to other people. And thus it was like all of these people kind of, so I wonder if this episode having two storylines that pull a bunch of characters into it was by design, right? Which was how do I make a simpler quote unquote episode that involves more, you know, that, that we can, that I can pull Sam and Toby into one storyline and I can pull Josh and, and Man. Leo into one storyline and CJ, right? Like how do I find ways to pull more people into less storylines, which I think is interesting. 
I think that's true. I mean, and I, 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 you know, the results I think are really, are really great in finding a simple episode. And I really also think that they managed to kind of put people in their lanes in a right way. This is one of the few episodes where I feel like Mandy is being used in an actual way that a a media advisor (laughs) might be used. She's, Terrible. She's a narc. She's, She's terrible a narc. in this episode. But she, she is, is the one saying, like, this is gonna be a media disaster, right? And it's like, but what's funny about what's funny to me about that is that like this you read the Edward James almost thing before, and there is a whole undercurrent to this episode around race, right? They never say it overtly, which is also interesting in its own yeah, way. That's interesting. Yes. They yeah. never overtly say it's gonna be a problem because he's Latino. Right, it ne- they never say that, um, but the subtext of so many scenes is just that is exactly that. Well, this is to, to, to bring it back to Mandy because I want to hear your thoughts on Mandy, Sarah. Um, <laughs> Mandy is in this episode. She's literally a narc that says everyone should get drug tests, and she's also the person that says, "Do we really want a Hispanic nominee? Like, it sounds like it's going to be really tough, guys." Yeah. Mandy sucks, Sarah. Please <laughs> tell me what your thoughts are on Mandy. She. She is such a thin character and so poorly outfitted. I don't like to comment on a woman's appearance, but I'm going to comment on what they did to her. (laughs) They put her in suits that don't flatter her. They did like the Felicity season two thing and gave her the worst possible haircut that made her just look so like let's take all sex appeal out of this woman like let's she's a beautiful woman i have seen her in other things the cutting edge that's a gorgeous woman and so they made her so flat and so odd looking and then we're like she's a sex symbol (laughs) like in the make her shrill too and i hate to say that because i know that that's a terrible but but you know what i mean like she feels grating she's always the antagonist to them Anyway. She's the worst cliches of everything, and yet in the pilot, they made her like Josh Lyman's like sexy love interest, and like you can't have it both ways. And I've just always wondered, like, why do you do that to her? That was so mean. Like, get her a suit yeah. that fits her properly. <laughs> I think they really watching this again and really kind of trying to unlock the the Mandy thing. I really did find myself feeling like. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. the writers disliked what the character was doing, which was that she was always the one saying, no, 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 don't do this. Don't do like always being 
sort of a, a roadblock makes the character really grating, really annoying. Um, you don't need it. I mean, you get when, when you bring Joey Lucas into the show, which essentially yeah. tells you polling data and various things like that. Like you're you're good. You don't need a, a series regular that comes in to say like media is not going to like this or media is going to like this. Like it's crazy. And it's a fine line between that and CJ, right? Like it's a very fine line. Like CJ can voice that same, of course, that same sort of point of view. But I, but I did feel like this is the one, one of the few where she is vac- voicing a media point of view, at least. Where in so many of the other episodes, you're just like, wait, why are you weighing in on this at all? <laughs> oh, she she serves a purpose in this episode. Just to be clear, um, I, I, Sarah, I want to get your thoughts on two relationships on the show that I think through a 2021 lens, perhaps don't hold up as well as they did <laughs> maybe in 99. This isn't to say that the performers or that the writing is is bad by any means, but the, the Josh and Donna relationship and the CJ yeah. and Danny relationship are two relationships that you would never do today, right? Like you just wouldn't do it. Now, it's not to say that the performances aren't wonderful. I think that the Timothy Busfield and, and Allison Janney make CJ and, and, oh, and, yeah. uh, and Danny sing. But dude... No means no. How many times can this woman say to you, I'm not going out with you? Sarah, what are your thoughts? Uh, My thoughts are so complicated because (laughs) everything you're saying is true, but I was rooting so hard. I know. know. And like, I loved the Donna Josh relationship. Mm -hmm. And there was something so fun about it. And that you could have that sexy banter in your workplace. The problem is that like, they were so here's where it worked is that like Josh and Donna both got something out of that like it was Mm -hmm. you they lived in those jobs and they had fun and it made it fun what would be a problem is if Donna was not into it and it was making her uncomfortable and she Mm -hmm. said something which kind of CJ does to Danny and yet or if she was drawn to Josh's power, which you do not yeah. get the impression that she is. Like, in fact, she she's taking him down a notch all the time. Yeah, you know, she she says the thing. She says the things that she says things to him that nobody else will say to him. That are Correct. she's very even in this episode, right when the when the guys like are all chest bumping each other, the whole you to men thing, which is like oh my God. the hardest part of the episode to watch. I think it's so she, brutal. He literally says, "You guys are gross." <laughs> And I think it's only yeah. because she can say, she does say, go like, you guys are gross, that we can kind of sort of swallow this relationship a little bit. But Sarah, I, in terms of the CJ character too, right? Like CJ starts, uh-huh. yeah. I love I love CJ, don't get me wrong. But I do think that CJ starts from a place of Aaron Sorkin not entirely sure what to do with her. And until it feels like Allison Janney kind of imbues her yeah. with the spine and the fortitude that the character really starts to blossom. Um, how did you, what are your thoughts on the CJ Danny thing, but also just like CJ's character overall? So to start with CJ's character overall, I feel like she, what I loved about that character and watching it in 1999, it was that she was a formidable person in that, in that boys club. It was such a boys club and she held her own and getting back to the physicality of her versus Mandy Part of it is height. And this is something I'm so hyper aware of because, so I am, I am Allison. You're tall. 
Yeah, I'm Paul. <laughs> uh, I actually know that I am about one inch shorter than Allison Janney. She's about six feet. I'm 5'11". And I know this because I saw her at an awards show once and I was like, I'm going to do the creepy walk by and you're going to tell me who's taller. <laughs> So I did that. I was like going, I like, I got That's amazing. and then like walked behind her, paused while my friend looked. <laughs> so I, but one thing I have noticed is on film sets and especially with like aggressive film direct TV directors, mm-hmm. I feel like, and I've discussed this with my female friends who are short. There's something about being able to look somebody in the eye and sometimes even look down. I have used this too before where I stand close to somebody and physically move my head down. So I'm like, I am looking down at you. And that's something that Alice and Janney can do. And like, they often have her in heels. She's towers over Sam. (laughs) And I think there is something about that physicality that makes her, and maybe it's just me because I'm super tall, like being hyper aware of it and like finally wanting to Race my tallness after like a lifetime of <laughs> well it's it makes me that there's this amazing super yaki t-shirt that says let elizabeth to bicky be tall and i yeah. think that that uh i feel like they let alice and jenny be tall in this yes. show. like they really do allow that yeah and they dress her in suits that like elongate her and mm-hmm. it's like the opposite of mandy who just looks like a little kid wearing suits yeah, it's funny. I've, it's I've been on a lot of, right? And it's that thing where you're on a lot of sets where they're putting men in lifts or putting them on Apple boxes, sure, sure, right? Sure. Like so that they are standing up taller than their, mm-hmm. than their no, colleagues sure. or whatnot, right? I mean, it's it's interesting that you bring up this thing of they let her be tall. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they let it's her also, be yeah. tall. It's also, you know, when Mark Harmon shows up in season three and they have their relationship, CJ and, and, uh, um, I can't think of the character's name. I'm sure Adam knows it, but I don't. Um, but uh, she says, I like that you're tall. Because, yes. <laughs> you know, they can literally like look eye to eye. Um, it, it It is something that, it's just, it is just interesting how CJ becomes, I mean, CJ's introduction is unfortunately falling off of a treadmill, um, which is also unfortunately a little bit of a Sorkian trope of women falling down all the time and klutzy. Um, And I do think that by the middle of this season that I can't even imagine that anymore. Like I can't imagine CJ tripping on a, on something or falling on something or anything like that. I can't imagine it with CJ, but I do think it's interesting that even this far into the season, Sorkin is still very much trying to figure out his relationship with like humor. Um, Like the way this episode begins with like, the ceiling block falling down as the button out for the, for the, for the, yeah, for the cold open. Like that, it's clear he's still like trying to figure out like, all right, how am I dealing with these act breaks? How am I dealing with these commercial breaks? How am I buttoning out things? Because it doesn't really relate like in a thematic way so much. I mean, they try to really push it with Donna being like, well, something's going to go wrong. And then the, the ceiling falls, but like, but you know, it's it's not like it doesn't like in it's not part of the story in any real way. Uh, well, I think he knows that. I mean, Bradley Whitford is inherently funny, and Allison Janney, both of them know how to deliver a joke. Um, and I guess to some extent, Rob Lowe does in his own little lane. Um, but yeah, I mean, to, to your to your point, Adam, it does feel like the show is still figuring itself out. I mean, it's this is the other thing too. We're only nine episodes into the show. I know I say only, but like we are only nine episodes into this show. Um, 
you know, this is this this show has basically not been on a break since it premiered. So it's I don't even know how you produce this show, let alone find the humor, keep all these plates spinning, do all the various things. Um, I do just kind of want to hit a couple of things in the plot um, as we sort of go through it. But um, the episode essentially opens with Josh and CJ on the phone, locking down this potential SCOTUS nominee uh, whose name is Patton Cabot Harrison, the uh, third. <laughs> Uh, they're, yeah, I don't know. Um, and the joke Donna makes a Jewish guy, <laughs> a Jewish guy on the Supreme Court. Um, I also will say that one of the things about the West Wing that you know uh, is that if everyone's excited about something at the top of the episode, they will not get that thing by the end of the episode. So everyone's like, this guy's the guy. And you know, that it's just like on ER, if a doctor says you're fine, you'll probably be dead by the end of the episode. Um, so there's sort of these kind of hallmarks to the show. Um, the, the, as you mentioned, Adam, the, the you to man thing or who to man thing. I was just like, Oh my God, it's just, it's so nineties, unfortunate awfulness. Um, so then jo- the, Donna tells Josh to be cautiously optimistic. And then the ceiling falls in. Um, there is, a fair amount of Josh stuff like this. Josh's chair isn't behind his desk. Josh yes. falls. Uh, Josh's suit isn't in the cleaner, so he's wearing fishing garb or something. Like it's there's a lot of that stuff with Josh, um, which I love, and it's very kind of like classically part of the show. Yeah. Um, I'm curious as to your thoughts on this, guys, because I've been rewatching Friends just kind of on a lark for for just you know a thing to watch for and i remember because <laughs> pandemic reasons sure uh and and i felt like back in the day chandler was like the character that everybody loved because he always had a wisecrack and he was always very funny uh don't find him as charming this time around i actually find chandler kind of grating and a little bit annoying this time around there's a little bit of chandler in josh i feel like josh is the chandler of this show do you think that's a fair assessment yeah of this show of this show, yes. But I mean he's, he's the wisecracking one, right? Yeah. Like he's the, he's the comic relief for sure. Yeah. And we see it. We you know, it's funny because right, we have the Matthew Perry and Bradley Whitford are gonna star in a Sorkin show. There, you know, very soon. And meet up on this show. You know? Yeah, and meet up yeah. on this show. It's interesting they sort of swap when when the he goes to Studio yes. 60, right, right, yes. Bradley Whitford becomes more of the serious role. Correct. But it's I, I think it's just it was one of those things that there's sort of these like 90s characters that feel like they kind of defined the the show and the decade that they existed in. And I feel like Josh Lyman is that character for this show. And I don't say that in a bad way, but it's also like the reason why you shoot him, right? Like it's the reason why you put him through what you put him through in season two in terms of his PTSD and, and what have you. Um so then we have this scene where this retiring justice basically gives the gears to, to Bartlett, says he should really consider Mendoza. Um, Mandy tells Josh why, uh, asks Josh why Lillian Field is holding a press conference. She doesn't want to be upstaged. Lillian Field says that one in three White House staffers uses drugs. Um, and then through the course of this, Josh goes to Leo and says, I think he's really coming for you. And Leo admits to the fact that he had sort of a pill addiction or some sort of addiction to pills and that he did a, he had treatment for it. Um, and then Leo goes to Bartlett at the end of the episode and says, you know, this is this could be bad. Um, this is a thing that that they go back to over the course of the series of of Leo's addictions, Leo's problems, uh, the Republicans trying to essentially take leo down 
I think we all know that a chief of staff is the hardest job to hold on to. That generally speaking, in an administration, if you're lucky, you'll only have four or six of them. Um, so I'd say that it stretches credibility that Leo would last as long as he did, especially with his various ailments and addictions. Um, but I still love it. It still works. Do you, what do you guys think about it? Definitely. And this gets sort of back to the whole Sorkin thing of like believing in the best in people, which I love is that Sorkin and like Kadams, this is something I got out of working with him a lot too, is that people are flawed, people make mistakes, but people are inherently good. And so you go to bat for them and you fight for them. And so there's something so amazing about And this goes back to what you were saying about, like, this is not realistic politics. Like, if this were real, Bartlett would have had to throw Leo to the wolves and say, like, I had no idea this is so difficult, but I'm going to get rid of him and let him go get his life together while I get somebody in here who can steady the course. And he would have used him as a political pawn. And so there's something about the wish fulfillment of, like, Bartlett, the ultimate father figure, being like, I'm going to love you no matter what, no matter, you know, mistakes and all that is really beautiful. It's that line that that line that he has with him, right? Is the, is the, did you have a drink yesterday? No. Did you have, are you planning to have one today? No. He's like, that's all you ever have to tell me. Hmm. You know, it's so amazing. It, it, and you see that central relationship come back so many times, right? It's in Bartlett for America in season three. It's in some sense, kind of a similar a similar thing of like, of like, as long as you're, as long as you're doing the right thing, I'm always going to do the right thing for you too. And I would never sell you out. Right. Like it's, I I think you're right. And I I never drew that line, Sarah, to, to Kadams. Um, But it is, it's totally the same thing, which is like, we just, we love these people because they love each other and they'll always, they'll always be there for each other. I also like, think, Sarah, you mentioned something, the, the father figure element, which is something that they don't really, that Bartlett doesn't wrap his arms around until kind of the later half of this season. But it really becomes uh, a real kind of tenet of his character. When I think about, uh, I mean, I, I would argue it might very well be in the shadow of two gunmen, uh, the, the way that he is with Josh. You can see that these that that they're his family and that he is he will lay down in traffic for these people. Um and that just it 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 gives the show so much heart. It just makes you yeah. love him so much. Yeah, that is a hundred percent when I pitched the bold type, I pitched um the Melora Hart and the Jacqueline character as the Bartlett. I said yeah. she will this the show belongs to her staff. Like that's where the soapy stories will be, but she is the moral center and she is the one who they all look to and who like like flies in to give guidance and love and unconditional support. And that was the show. And I thought, you know, the West Wing, how they used the biggest actor in the whole group in the smallest way, but in such an impactful way is something that I sought to model in the bold type. Oh, I I couldn't agree with you more in terms of just making sure that you're, you know, that the, 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 the rock at the center of your show is the beating heart of the show, that that it's the thing that just, and, and, and it's something that they learn. I mean, we all know the stories of this show is supposed to be about Sam Seaborn, 
ultimately, yeah. obviously, it's not. They realize that, you know, uh, that audiences love Martin Sheen. Uh, and the show, that pivot, which is so unbelievably important, I can't even imagine what the show is without him. Uh, you know, I, I tweeted about this when I first started doing the, the miniseries, but it is a towering performance by Martin Sheen that he makes look so easy yeah. that he never won an Emmy for the show is just insane. Um, I, I think about about what he brings to this character, his Catholicism, his, I mean, which is a you know something that's very important to Martin Sheen. Um, there's all sorts of things that are imbued in Bartlett that make him feel like this larger than life character and yet somehow very approachable and very, as you said, very small and, and, um, and grounded. It's just, it's, it's, it's an amazing thing. You know, you don't, you, you see it obviously in this particular scene with Leo and, and that's the beginning of it, but it, it really starts to blossom when you see the way that he loves Sam and Toby and see like all of them, that it's, that he really is the father to them. It's, it's, it's really, it's really something special. Um, so around this point, you have Josh and Danny have a conversation about Lillian Field. Uh, and, trying to figure out what his end game is. Um, and Josh tells Danny that CJ likes goldfish. Um, and thus Danny brings her a physical goldfish in a bowl, uh, in a fish bowl. Um, and it's, uh, <laughs> she says she likes the crackers, not the actual fish mm. themselves. Um, but this might be the first time that we really get to hear Alice and Janie's unbelievably wonderful laugh that is infectious and so human. Um, and it's the first time that you start to really get the sense, like she kisses him on the cheek and like, he's kind of broken through a little bit. Um, but I mean, Jesus, uh, he still should have known better, but it's, it's, it is what it is. Um, so I, I, I want to kind of talk for a second about, um, I guess the personification of Republicans in this universe, because I do feel like um, I wish we had these Republicans. <laughs> but uh, well, kind of did back then. Like things were not as partisan. Right. right like right. they're just. It was never like this. Like I said, I was super involved in politics at the time before right. we all got disillusioned and everything. And um, yeah. it just it was it was a lot more reasonable. I will say that. But I would also say, too, that, um, that one of the things that this show got dinged for was the way that it perceived Republicans, right? Like it was that this this kind of pie-in-the-sky, idealistic perspective of democratic politics and that the Republicans weren't painted or, quite frankly, really had any characters. Thus, yeah. you have Ainsley Hayes that comes in in season two. Um who I love, and I think Ainsley Haynes is one of the best characters they've done. Um, and Speaking I wish of that sexual I'm- harassment. <laughs> There's like well, a whole yeah. episode where yeah. it's like you're a sex kitten or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it's not great. It's not great. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not writing for that stuff, uh, just to be clear. But I, but I, I, I do think that at the very least, Sorkin tried to find a way into a, into Republican ideology um, that he could wrap his head around and. Um, fold into his universe in a way. It's like, um, oh my God, why am I drawing a blank on Ron Silver's character who comes in, uh, who's also sort of a pseudo-Republican. Bruno. Bruno, right. Yeah. Uh, Bruno Gianelli, who comes in in season three. Um, but he, he finds ways to bring in smart Republicans with, that, that believe in things that he can at least get behind. Um, you know, we've watched political dramas 
you know, become scandal and then House of Cards. And we've seen how political discourse is now shown in television. And I guess my question to you guys is just, do you feel like the Republicans on this show feel like caricatures or do you feel as though they're at least, you know, fleshed out? It's interesting. For me, I think they, the, my answer sort of is both, which is that I think the necessities of TV drama sort of, particularly this one, though, we stay in the West Wing, right? Occasionally they do those exterior shots, but we are in the West Wing. We are in the point of view of the Bartlett administration. And so when we're looking at the Republicans, we're often looking at them either on a television screen and then it's being commented on by by our heroes or they're talking about something a Republican did. We're not even actually seeing it. Right. Right. That, that it's always within the point of view and the context of the inside the West Wing. And so I think there's a case to be made that the, what, what's being perceived as like Republicans presented as an enemy um, yeah. is, in fact, the perception of the characters within the West Wing and what they have to deal right. with and why it gets minimal, minimized. And then you see something like, um, I don't remember the character's name, but at, um, there's the the uh, there's an episode. Is it in this episode? It may be in a different episode where the where um, they're trying to. Uh, it's a different episode where they're trying to change. The, it's it's lies, damn lives, and statistics. I think, but they're trying to change the makeup of the FEC, right? right. And there's a there's a Republican who's for like who's for you know basically removing money from elections. And that guy very much is willing to make a deal because he's, he agree, they agree on that thing, right? Yeah. And that's an interaction that's in person. It's not an interaction through media or right. through somebody's, through somebody's uh, personal, you know, through somebody in the administration's personal lens. And so I think there is a case to be made that like what you're seeing is a character's perception of the Republican Party. And it's just mostly presented that way throughout the series, but that you might right. be able to make that case. But that said, they are presented very shy. Well, they're, I mean, they're presented <laughs> as villains. Yeah. I, 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 and, I, and I understand the idea. Of, I mean, listen, they are villains now, it seems. But I, I do think that back then it was more, uh, it was less full-throated obstructionist nonsense. And there was at least some wiggle room of getting something through, um, you know, and, and until sort of Newt Gingrich and it all kind of goes to hell in a handbasket from there for all intents and purposes. Um, I want to, I want to highlight a line of Mandy's that, that, that made me laugh. Um, she said, uh, getting Mendoza confirmed will be tough. And if all hell breaks loose with Lillianfield, it could cripple us for a year. What? Like, I mean, it's laughable now to think that any of this would cripple an administration. I'm not sure it would have even done it then. And I understand you need stakes, but like, it was just laughable. It, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I didn't even register that line because honestly, what what I, what I love about the West Wing is it has this way of making things that like don't feel stakey, feel so stakey. Right, 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 right. Because yeah. I, I, I'm with you. It's like... I don't know. I remember like living through Clarence Thomas and it's like, that was a big deal. And that was a scandal. And even that, like, then he got put on the court and no big deal. How, I have a question for you guys. I'm Canadian, so I don't know the answer to this, but how many Supreme Court nominees have not gotten through? I mean, I know 
Bork is a big one because that was sort of, you know, that, that was Reagan and he kind of tripped over himself on that yeah. whole nomination. Um, and I believe that that Bush, W, yeah. had some dummy that he put up and they were just like, no, 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 no. But I'm, I'm trying to think of, there can't be that many of them, right? Not that many, I don't yeah. think. But I, again, like in the olden days, <laughs> again, because I'm significantly older than Adam, like you just didn't sure. pay that much. I mean, there wasn't, I mean, there was CNN, but we didn't have cable. And so there wasn't that round right, of right. news. And so like a Supreme Court justice nominee might get like a couple minutes, like third story deep on the evening news, but it it just wasn't like today. And so I think unless somebody was nominated like Clarence Thomas, where there was this explosive sexual harassment story around it, mm-hmm. you just, you didn't pay attention. The stakes didn't feel as high. It felt like whoever got in the court was going to be fair and judges are nonpartisan. Rah, rah, America. <laughs> what a disaster. What a disaster we're in right now. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's looking at the Supreme Court right now, it is, it is disheartening, to say the least. Um, and and uh, I'm very curious to see what this, uh, this committee that's been put together is going to suggest to Biden. And I don't know if he can make any real substantive change. We will see. Um, but I, I, I want to just, still, yes, though, I do think the, the thing you said about like Mandy's line and that they'll, you know, we're going to be crippled for a year. Mm-hmm. Um, like, like it's interesting, right? Because we're all, we're all saying that's not going to happen in real life, but he did dramatize exactly that, yeah. which is right. When, when yeah. this Lillian field story comes to a head in season yes. three, mm-hmm. it, yep. it, and it's because he won't not back Leo. If he were right. to not back Leo, he could make it all go away. But because he won't not back Leo, they the the sort of dramatic climax of the Sorkin years is exactly this thing, this Lillian Field Hills Leo thing coming back to Rose and be, coming back to Roost and like them having to them having to you know figure out a way to not make it cripple them. Now whether that is real or not, I think is 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 a different thing than what he chose to dramatize, which well, is like, he did bring it home. It's interesting too because the reason the stakes worked for me is not because of Mandy's line and not because of any like external thing of it's going to cripple the administration. It was because of um, the personal stakes. So when these characters, because I love these characters, when the characters care deeply about something, I care deeply. So that opening teaser of them on the phone and them being so excited, I'm like, yes, I'm in. I want them to get what that what they want. Yep, yep. And that's and that's what Sorkin does so well is like the stakes. He takes these very big stakes and makes them extremely personal. I, I feel like I'd be remiss if I didn't ask this question. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out the best way to ask it. But with Aaron Sorkin's past with drugs, I feel like, you know, it, it does seem to be a little bit of a recurring theme, if you will, where he does kind of try to talk about them and 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 try to kind of break down the taboos that we might have about drug use to some degree or another, recreational or otherwise. Uh, it's a it's a big part of the Studio 60 pilot, although Studio 60 is just a thinly veiled version of, <laughs> of Aaron Sorkin's life, but well, that's neither here nor there. Um, I, I do think it's interesting that through this Leo stuff, he really does try to get to the heart of addiction and to get to the heart of 
what I can only assume is things that he was grappling with himself and trying to sort of figure out a way to unpack this, why it's important to us as a society, why we hold addicts as, you know, I don't, I, you know what I'm saying in terms of the fact that like society looks down on them. Like there's just all of this stuff. There's it's mental health. It's all these things. And I think that he does it in a really interesting way with Leo's character. I know that John Spencer also, if I'm not mistaken, has uh, an alcoholic or had an alcoholic past in his life as well. So there was that too. But I just, I think all of this is just uh, very nuanced, very heartfelt. All of this stuff feels very real. And I can't help but wonder if part of that has to do with Aaron Sorkin's story himself. I mean, I, I think it does. By the way, I think it's funny. There's a line in here from uh, when Josh is talking to Leo and he says, you know, you're Boston Irish Catholic. Back then, the problem with drinking wasn't really a problem at all, which is also funny because Leo is from, from Chicago, Chicago in, a, in, a, in another episode. Oh, yeah. Um, he's there's a whole monologue about men of Chicago. Um, but like, he did choose to bring that story back, not just in Leo here, but he brings it back at the end with Mendoza, right? Yeah. The answer to the privacy question comes in the form of this storyline about the drug thing. And what would you do if, if you, know, you know, how somebody in the workplace was, you know, forced to take a drug test? And he says, I would reinstate that person. It's hard not to wonder if something was going on behind the scenes, in the, in the, particularly like yeah. in sports night, Sorkin writes the network into, right? Like writes the network notes into the show that he's clearly getting on the show, um, <laughs> right? That like, it's it's hard not to wonder if there was something literally going on here and he just decided to write it right into the show. Well, I also uh, think it's just the thing of like, I deserve love too. It's totally. I about how Bartlett is Biden. And like, remember when um, like this Hunter Biden text messages got hacked and then what it revealed was that like Biden was an incredibly forgiving, loving father who's like, yeah. I love you no matter what. And you're, you know, your addiction. That is was the scandal. And and again, there's just something so paternal and beautiful about that. And like, if you're struggling with something and I don't know what Sorkin, like maybe he didn't see it as, I, I not sure. even, sure. I have yeah. no idea, but there is something very beautiful about that message of like, mm-hmm. you are not the worst thing that you've done. You are not, this does not define you. That's very beautiful. I, I absolutely agree. And, and, you know, I, I do remember the, the the this whole scandal about about Hunter's text and it all revealing that Biden's just a good dad is just like the most like the most perfect encapsulation of the 2020 election that ever was. But I also I, I, I want to kind of uh, hone in on the last scene of this episode, which is them uh, talking to Roberto Mendoza, which is he's. Sorkin loves a good name. Like he just gets how to write names really well. Uh, Roberto Mendoza is just a great name. Um, he doesn't really get grilled as hard as Harrison does, though, in the Oval Office. Harrison's like really put to task. And Mendoza's asked one question. So he's like, I'm good. I'm fine. <laughs> That's basically it. But um, but there's something about Edward James Olmos's, um presence. Like just the way he he holds himself in that room, his voice, just everything about him is just and obviously they go even deeper into that uh with celestial navigation, but it just goes to show that casting is just so important. The guy's got four lines and when he's walking through the West Wing and they're applauding him, you're like, yeah, fuck yeah, this guy deserves it. He said four lines. I there's nothing to base it on other than that Edward James almost is awesome. But I think it's his response, right? When when sure. when Harrison is in that chair 
and is being questioned. And he says, I'm a very well-credentialed man. And like that, that should mean I shouldn't be questioned, right? The implication, the subtext of his, of his emotions and his response is I've done, I I come from great schools and I worked at great law firms and I have clerked for the right people. And so how dare you question me? And it's literally just going to say it's so Kavanaugh. It made me think so much of him. Yeah. But it's, it's this, it's the, it also, I think what Sorkin is putting up is is he's made an episode about, you know, race where he doesn't actually speak about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Right. And like Mendoza gets up there and they ask him questions and he answers, you know, forthright and in, in, and he, he doesn't sweat at all. He's just like and, and he thinks he's up for a much smaller job. <laughs> yes, he yes. thinks he's up for a position yeah. on the president's council on like. Hispanic something or other. Something or other, right? Like they, they I don't even know if they finished the sentence in it because they made it, they made it up. It doesn't actually they yeah. they're like she's like, yeah. Mandy's like I had to make fake letterhead. Yeah. Um so like it, I think it's really to me the thing there is that it's 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 really that it's the response to the being course, questioned that that makes Bartlett go this is our guy, right? Yeah. You know. And I for think the audience I think there's something about an underdog. It's something about you take the entitled Kavanaugh guy who's expected his whole life to be given this thing. And then you take this incredibly sincere man who has spent his whole life fighting for justice, but has not had every opportunity handed to him. And then you surprise him with it. And there's just something we want the, we want the sincere underdogs to win. And so there's something about like all the staffers, like lining up to cheer him on that. No, for sure. (laughs) I think they more overtly, I think they, that there was, I think they more overtly brought this episode around to race either in the script or even there, there's the scene between Charlie and Harris. And and he says, yes, the country club, right? That scene exists. The exact scene almost exists at the end of the first season when one of Bartlett's uh, ambassadors gets fired from the daughter of the, for having an affair with the daughter of the prime minister of Brazil. And Charlie's sitting in the room with the guy and says, I used to work at the Gramercy Club. That's how you know me. And like the guy realizes, he's like, oh, I quit that place because of their policies for rich. I think they did the exact same thing here where like you turned out that it was like a very white country club that Charlie was, you know, three seasons caddying at. And I think they decided to kind of like let, like cut that. I thought was going to happen. Like, and I even remembered in my mind. And then I'm like, yeah. how did I remember the scene in my head that doesn't exist? I it thought, comes later. It's later I, in the season. I thought that Harrison was, was it Harrison? Yeah. 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 I thought he was going to come to Bartlett and be like, you took my nomination away because like I was racist at the country club. Right. And yeah. Bartlett's like, wait, you were, no, I, like, Charlie's a too decent a man to ever tell. Right. And like in my head, that scene was coming. And then when it never came, it was so. Yeah, like, I, I, that, yeah, that was how strong the subtext was. Yeah, it's it's you you feel an energy in that scene, an unspoken energy between Harrison and Charlie. That and and obviously what we've watched the show many times and projected a, a, a later similar yeah. scene into it. But still, there's something there that you can't really put your finger on, um, which I think is just ultimately kind of just left to kind of go away. But it still underlines you're not supposed to like this guy. Like you're, you, there, there's just there's this. 
you just don't like Harrison. He's just an uppity white guy who's just like had everything, you know, he's whatever. I, I do think it's interesting that, um, you know, that they never really say that Mendoza is, I mean, they say he's Hispanic, but they just don't really underline the idea. I think what's also interesting too is, you know, the episode opens obviously with that scene with the justice where he really says like, give him a shot, give him a shot, take a risk, grow a spine, what have you. And I think by the end of this episode, you really get the feeling that Bartlett, who has always been the guy who wants to do the right thing. I mean, we see it in, in uh, the flashback stuff in, in the shadow of two gunmen where he's willing to tax farmers more because he wants it to be easier for people to get milk. Um, and that he doesn't, you know I mean? Th- these are the things, these are kind of the DNA of this character. And I think you're seeing now this turn or a shift in his character of being like, I want to fight for these things. I, 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 you know, I don't want to take the easy road. And and Mendoza is going to be harder, but it's it's the right choice. Like this idea of what's right and what's tough being synonymous is something that the show really starts to run with past this point. I mean, is um, Let Bartlett yeah. by B. Bartlett after this episode? It is. Right? Yes. Yeah, which is, uh, you know, it's coming up in a few episodes. Yeah. And that really brings this all to a serious yeah. head where, like, yeah. you're real, like, you know, he has to be the guy he wants to be. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think that it's all sort of, and, and you kind of mentioned this too, Sarah, but I mean, when he picks Mendoza, like, I, I can't help but cry at this stuff. Like, the yeah. show just understands. I mean, listen, it just hits me in that place. Yeah. That score comes in, and you're just like, this is the best. Everyone's so good. Think about what we could do if we just yeah. were better. Uh, it's 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 really it's really special. And and I mean, Edward James almost just brings this weight to it as well, that you're just you just love him. But um, I want to ask you guys what your favorite episodes are of the West Wing. Um Adam, do you want to go first? Yeah, make Adam go first. Because <laughs> I want to say to all the listeners that Phil even emailed us and said he was going to ask this question so that we wouldn't be put on the spot. And then I totally forgot to think about it. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. I have I have a, a, a weird You have answer. a couple. It's fine I, if you do. Yeah, I have a weird answer because I, I obviously love... I think if you were to ask me what the best episode of the show is, you know, I would be like, it's it's either like two cathedrals or 17 people or like posse comitatus, like one of those three. But what's interesting to me is there's an episode I come back to over and over again in a weird way, um, which is We Killed Yamamoto, which is the episode before posse comitatus. And it's a transitionary episode, but there's something great about the Bartlett relationship with the military that through all throughout the series, but you really are getting at his like, conflict there because he's had a lot of experiences so far and it's him wanting to take care of somebody not willing to use sort of uh, violence to solve a problem and needing and being and essentially giving up on it once he you know once he realizes that the justice department isn't going to be able to handle the problem he almost is willing to let this terrorist go and it's one of the few times i think where and like the military, it's the scene between John Amos and 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 John Spencer, yeah. Yeah. where he says, "You have to tell him he can't let this guy just go home. He can't cancel this meeting. He has to have the meeting that's going to lead to him assassinating a foreign, a foreign, uh, um, uh, uh, you know, a, 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 essentially a, a politician from from another country." Like he. That scene between the two of them where he says, you know, we killed Yamamoto, you know, you got to tell him he can't 
he can't do this is I, I, there's something about that episode that even though it's a transition between like, like it's leading to the big episode, which is the next one where he's actually going to do it. I come back to that episode all the time. And I think it's because there's a lot of these talking heads in rooms that are one-on-ones in that episode that are really good. Um, you, it's just what Sorkin you, does really well. Yeah. I was, I, I was just, as you were talking, I was thinking about the fact that like television for all intents and purposes is people talking in rooms, right? Like that's, 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 you know, that's yeah. what it is. Um, and that's what Sorkin loves. He loves people sitting in rooms on two sides of an argument, both being incredibly smart and researched and making the audience for all intents and purposes come to their own conclusions about what they should or shouldn't do. Um, and that is a perfect crystallization of it, right? Like seeing these two great actors in this room debating the, ultimately maybe one of the biggest things that's going to happen in this administration. And it really just comes down to two people in a room, which is, you know, uh, a beautiful, amazing thing. But I love that episode too. I mean, I love them all, but Sarah, do you have a- uh, <laughs> Okay, have I got one? it. All right, one right, I've got two. One of okay. them is everybody's favorite episode. Adam, what's the name of the Christmas one where Toby finds- Noel. Find, yeah. Oh, no, wait, no, 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 no. That's uh, in excess of day. Yeah, when they The next find, episode. Yes, when uh, the homeless man is found with Toby's uh, business card in his coat that Toby had given to Goodwill. I mean, I can't- it's I nice. would describe the episode, but I'll start openly weeping. <laughs> So um, instead, I, the other one is um, it's when Bartlett is, I believe, up for re-election, and they uh, Donna, Josh, and Toby go to the state fair. And there's two, two things I really like about it. And it, what what state are they even in? They're somewhere in the Iowa, middle, Iowa, I think. And Toby and Josh are such snobs about it the whole time. And they're one I liked that they were out of the White House and there was just something about yeah. seeing yeah. that. And and Sorkin even talks about that episode in his master class because he talks about like how he found out that if you miss the bus, you just get left behind. <laughs> and, like so this whole episode was built from that. But what I loved about it is my family is from Wisconsin and I spent summers going to the 4-H fair and you know taking pride in my grandpa's cows when they won blue ribbons. Uh-huh. And to- Toby and Josh were just there was this elitism the whole time that for the first part of the episode, you're supposed to be like, oh, they're so cool because they work in the White House. And then at the end of the episode, Donna just lays into them and is like, you know, you laughed at them the whole time, but never like, <laughs> I'm going to start crying, <laughs> like, like That's saw true. the pride they take in their heirloom tomatoes or like just yeah. this, like the sincerity of these people, <laughs> which are, are my people. And there was just something so unexpected about that. And I loved seeing Donna like v- have a voice also because mm-hmm. 1999 was a time when women were not you, you know, obviously CJ was in this powerful role, but for the most part, it, it was men in these roles. And Donna is somebody who you could tell who, like, if she had, had grown up 20 years later, she would have been Josh or Toby. She was that smart. But she just probably never was pushed in the same ways or had the opportunities. And, like, maybe I'm overthinking this whole episode, but no, I no, no, thought no. there was something so magical about that moment. And now I'm I. Talking. Donna, no, Donna gets me all the time. Um, the the scene that gets me uh, in season three is her in the Oval Office um, talking to her high school teacher. Yeah, and oh, saying God. I'm <laughs> I'm in the White House and it's because of you. And you're just like it's like I mean I, every time I think about it, it makes me emotional. Like it's such a really. I think part of it is also um, Janelle Maloney who yeah. is uh, has 
I've, who I've actually met in person. I got a hug from Janelle Maloney once. She has no idea who I am. It doesn't matter. But she was so <laughs> I lovely. I mistaken for her at a yoga class once. <laughs> It's the same thing. It's basically the same thing. Um, but I, but I do feel like she's just a very genuine person, um, and and she just feels like a real person. It's not to say that these other characters don't, but on some level, they're on like rarefied air. She feels like a real person. So when you have these moments like them trapped in Iowa um, in twenty hours in America, or you know her in, in in the in the Oval Office in Stirred, she's just such a beautiful soul like you just really feel that about her um the other thing about 20 hours in america that i love and it comes to what you were talking about as as well sarah is the bet that that josh and toby have um i'm toby's killer and i work in the white house (laughs) and the end when he says it and it makes you cry and you're just like (laughs) god damn it you took this stupid runner of a joke and you made it into something that crippled me (laughs) like it's just like that's that's the beauty of the show I yeah. mean, it really is just that they can take that stuff. Um, yeah, and, and even that I yeah. can cry just describing it. No, I did. I mean, I, I got misty. I thinking about Donna in the fucking Oval Office for their teacher. And I, Donna's I don't... from Wisconsin, by the way. Just so oh, you there, know. You go. there you go. That's why you love <laughs> her so much. From like Minnesota, was it Wisconsin? No, it's Wisconsin. Wisconsin. Yeah, she's very close to the Canadian border because she loses. Oh, yeah, she was. Yeah, but might have been a Canadian. <laughs> she was. She was Canadian for a hot minute there. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, it's a. Uh, it's it's a. Uh, it's amazing. Um, it's an amazing show. And and watching that masterclass also just really sort of, um, you know, I watched this show for so many years and it seems, it still seems unattainable to me in terms of the, the level of talent and, and just all the things that they did on this show. Um, but then you see Sorkin talking and you're just like, he's just a guy in front of a computer like us. And it really <laughs> does makes you Were feel you better. expecting him to talk like one of his characters and then he yeah. doesn't? And, you're and like, he stammers and he goes <laughs> off topic and he just says, um, all the time and hates, hates a, a blank screen with a cursor as much as we do. It just, it really does make the whole thing feel just so much more human yeah it really does so this has been an ad for masterclass <laughs> yeah yeah this is it maybe we can get them as a sponsor that'd be great because uh they're real expensive guys fyi and um, I, I i highly recommend the masterclass with the hostage negotiator who teaches you how to negotiate really good. that sounds intense really and I'll, I'll look that i'll look into that one um thank you both so much for coming on to talk about this with me i really do appreciate it and i hope that you'll both come back to talk about some other television show down the road Loved and, it. Uh, 1999 was a special year for me. A special year. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much, guys. I really do appreciate it. Thank you. One last thing. Please rate, review, and subscribe. Uh, speaking of subscribing, check out our Patreon on all the best films of 1989. Batman, When Harry Met Sally, Fabulous Baker Boys, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Ghostbusters 2, Field of Dreams, Major League, and many, many more. We are covering all the best films of 1989 with amazing guests like Joanna Robinson, Liz Hanna, Hunter Covington, Brian Cogman, David Iserson, and many, many more. All your favorite guests from our 1999 podcast are coming on to the 1989 Patreon. You can sign up for it at patreon.com backslash podcast like it's 1989. For only $5, you get access to all of these awesome episodes. And for a few bucks more, you get video of our 1999 episodes as well. Plus, there are other very cool tiers too, where you can even be a guest on our podcast. Also, please check out our Reddit as well at reddit.com backslash podcast like it's. We're also on Twitter at podcast like it's. We're also on Instagram at podcast like it's.
Thank you to Ernie and Will for producing our episode, Sullivan for our social media, Yonkatas for our artwork and theme songs, and most of all, thank you all for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.